Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Siva Vadianathan. everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, April 16th. Before we get started, I want to introduce my co-host for the next two weeks, Siva Vaidyanathan. He's the director of the Center for Media and Citizenship at the University of Virginia. He's also the author of a book called Antisocial Media, How Facebook Disconnects Us and Undermines Democracy. It's a great book. I've read it. And also the book, The Googleization of Everything. Siva, thanks so much for co-hosting. Oh, my pleasure, April. You know, I've been a guest on this show, and and this is just a great honor. And I, I look forward to having some fun here. Yeah. And so uh, this is our first week. Next week will hopefully be a, a little more, even more ironed out and, and more used to this. On today's show, we're going to talk about India's ongoing election and how parties are taking advantage of social media to spread propaganda to voters in the world's biggest democracy. Then we'll talk about Uber's decision to take the company public despite massive legal disputes with its workforce over their employment status and the fact that the company is hemorrhaging an eye-popping one billion a year. After that, I will talk to Andy Greenberg, a senior writer for Wired, about the recent indictment of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. I'll discuss the details of the U.S. indictment against him, as well as Assange's strange ideological trajectory from radical transparency activist to a collaborator with Russia during Trump's bid for the White House. And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then. Okay, Siva. So it's so great to have you as a co-host and not as somebody that we're interviewing, because uh, I just learned <laughs> that you used to be a journalist before you were a professor, book writer, social media critic. <laughs> yeah, I was a journalist back in the in the analog 20th century uh, when we had these large <laughs> sheets of paper that would have ink on them. And that is how we delivered information to the people. A newspaper man before the podcast gold rush (laughs) and before and before social media, which has become your your fixation. As I mentioned at the top of the show, Siva has written multiple books uh, about some of the world's largest companies, Google and Facebook primarily. Have have you written other books, too, or? I have. I I started out writing books about copyright uh, and uh, and intellectual property. Oh, wow. Yeah. wrote Wrote a book about Napster, wrote a book about the history of American copyright law and and copyright drew me into Google because, of course, the library scanning project was so fascinating. And then Google drew me into Facebook. And somehow I ended up on this show. <laughs> well, it's just wonderful to have such a uh, well-rounded expert on so many of the issues that we talk about. But uh, we're going to start today actually talking about something that you you have expertise on, uh, but isn't directly about Google and Facebook, but rather about the phenomena that is democracy in India and the elections that are happening right now. Uh, when did they start? Well, so the voting uh, for the general national elections in India started just this week, but they will go on through different segments until May 23rd. May 23rd will be the day that the results of the election will come forth. And so India, with a population of 1.3 billion people, has about 900 million registered voters, and they almost all vote every election. It's pretty stunning to think about that kind of turnout, right? And they're, and they're voting across 29 states. Uh, they're voting in 
in more than 15 languages. Wow. You know, they, it's an amazing activity. It's like this pageant of democracy that occurs about every five years, but you know, it's a parliamentary system. So sometimes more frequently, uh, and, and they're, you know, they're electing their full uh, Congress, both houses of, of their, well, their parliament, actually, what they call the Lok Sabha and the Rajya Sabha, the lower house and the upper house. Uh, you know, and, and they all vote. And since the 1990s, they have all voted on secure electronic machines. And because illiteracy is high in India, people tend to vote for the symbol of their party. And they use these secure voting machines. And the machines are so well designed and have been designed by computer scientists over the years and tested and tested and tested that there is remarkably high level, uh, remarkably high level of faith in the results of the election. So contrast that to the United States, where we can't seem to get it together on how we should vote. We have no national standards for voting. We have no, uh, you know, we, we, we barely have enforceable state levels. We have terribly insecure electronic machines when we choose to use them. And every two to four years, we have a series of close elections that seem to indicate some sort of meltdown in trust. So India has mastered the trust question when it comes to the actual process of voting. But the other really fascinating thing about India is it is, first of all, Facebook's biggest market with more than 300 million regular Facebook users. And almost every one of them is also a WhatsApp user. So WhatsApp and Facebook are taking over the media ecosystem in India and they are carrying the worst content, the worst garbage, right? Harassments and calls to harassment and calls to lynchings and mass violence and lots of conspiracy stuff. A lot of it aimed at the Muslim population, which is about 15% of the population of India. A lot of it aimed at Christians. A lot of it aimed at liberals or women or LGBTQ activists. And, and so you have this really corrosive public sphere, a deeply insecure culture of democracy, but you have the actual mechanics of democracy working so well. I think if we paid close attention to what goes on in India, we in the United States could learn both how to avoid tipping into the cesspool of nonsense that flows around Indian politics. At the same time, we could probably learn how we might run the actual instruments of elections or technologies of elections a lot better. So I want to I want to go back to something. You, one of the first things that you said or started talking about uh, was that the technology that's used to to vote in India elections has not uh, had serious security scares, which is just mind boggling to me. Because in the U.S., it was only after the 2016 elections that our election infrastructure was considered kind of part of our critical national infrastructure, and therefore would get uh, national kind of security attention. And we have to realize that that so many machines across the U.S. are running on Windows XP um, are known to be incredibly hackable. I mean, we've seen them actually hacked on the floor of Congress to run Pac-Man, you know, and and they haven't been improved since then in many cases. We've seen our voter registration rolls get hacked. Uh, So we're dealing with just an incredibly porous and vulnerable system. Uh, but but jumping to the other thing that you mentioned, which is that whereas the the Indian government seems to have their tech under control in some ways, the, or in most ways it appears, the uh, that where the U.S. comes into the India elections has been a mess, and that and that has been through the company that is Facebook, which also owns WhatsApp, uh, and that's been a, a you said a kind of a cesspool of disinformation. Can you um, expand on that a little bit? 
Yeah, sure. Like in 2014, um, the BJP, which is the current ruling party of India at a, at a national level, and their leader, Narendra Modi, uh, exploited Facebook really deftly. They figured out that Facebook is the best possible way to very carefully aim messages at certain segments of the population. Facebook itself will do all that work for you. You can motivate people in all sorts of ways that are kind of invisible to any sort of public scrutiny. And you can make sure to get your message to the right people. And they did that so effectively that they swept to this massive electoral victory in 2014. So now Modi's up for re-election. His economy is sputtering. His plans for reform have all basically fallen apart. Uh, you know, he he's not been able to do what he promised for people. So there's real concern among his partisans that he's losing support and the BJP is losing support. At the same time, all of the other parties running against him have taken to Facebook and WhatsApp to distribute their propaganda. The result may be a different party running India, but the long-term result is terrible for democracy. Whenever you see political communication retreat to these private spheres, these uninterrogatable uh, communication networks, you lose any sense of public debate and public conversation about the issues. It all becomes about who can motivate their own people to rile up hatred and anger to, to, to go vote and, you know, or do worse, right? Harass or commit violence against some other group in society. So what you're seeing in India is, you know, the numbers of democracy couldn't be better, but the quality of democracy, right? So the quantity of democracy couldn't be better. Mm -hmm, the quality mm -hmm. of democracy in India could not be worse. Right. And, I, you know, and of course, Facebook's problems in India will continue likely long after the elections are concluded. Uh, and Facebook is is not only having uh, problems in India in places where, it you know, it, it didn't originate. It's also having uh, problems in, in Myanmar, in many countries. It's really just been used as a tool for hate. But we need to move on now to some other news uh, here in the U.S., but but touches around the world still. And that is about Uber, which last Thursday released its hotly anticipated prospectus for being publicly traded on the stock market. Uh, Uber could reach a value of $100 billion. And just for comparison, earlier this year, Uber's arch rival Lyft went public uh, in March at $24 billion. So we're just looking at a, a massive IPO here. Uh, in its filing to the Security and Exchange Commission last week, the company shared that while it may fetch this astronomical value, this $100 billion value, uh, the company is still burning cash at an uncontrollable rate, it seems. Uber lost $1.8 billion in 2018. Despite that, its revenue clocked in at $11 billion. But, you know, losing $1.8 on top of that is, is just, I, I just can't even fathom the amount of money that this company is hemorrhaging. It seems like the, you know, the risk to Uber and its investors is so much higher than it is with any comparable company because of that valuation, right? But also because of its global spread. I mean, you know, what is it about where Uber makes money and where Uber matters that, that might leave it vulnerable uh, in, in the next few years? Yeah, I mean, so one thing that a lot of details were shared in its uh, public offering filings, uh, including the fact that 24 percent, so almost a quarter of Uber's bookings are in five cities. That's New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, London and Sao Paulo uh, in Brazil. And that means that those cities have tremendous regulatory leverage over the company. So if and we've already seen, you know, New York changed the way drivers are classified. Uh, that was after 
you know, big regulatory disputes uh, in the city with the mayor. Uh, if we see other cities, you know, clamp down on how, you know, this company and, and rideshare companies are just in general gig economy uh, companies are treated, it could really affect Uber. I mean, they're just like right. massively dependent. Also, 15 percent of bookings apparently come from airport trips. So if airports decide that they don't want to cooperate or they no longer wish to uh, work with these companies or, or disallow them from servicing the airport, that will have a tremendous impact. So, you know, I, I just didn't realize how how sensitive the business model was. And, and we know that the biggest problem with Uber is its labor force. The biggest threat to Uber is its labor yeah. force. Right? It has all these independent contractor drivers. Uh, and, and we know they're on the record. Uber's on the record basically saying it would like to get rid of them. It would like to eventually have driverless vehicles. So it seems like it's in a, in a race with this burn rate of $1.8 billion a year to uh, you know, maintain some cash as it, as it transforms itself from a ride-sharing company using human drivers to an autonomous vehicle company somewhere down the line. Uh, you know, what, do you, what do you see is going on with the labor system, situation with Uber? Right. You know, one thing that I'm glad that you brought up the kind of robot car aspirations, kind of taking humans out of the element, because Uber has not been treating its drivers as employees. Uh, They're not employees. They're contractors Um, and people who work for Uber. That means that they don't receive health care. They don't have a guaranteed minimum wage. They cannot uh, unionize. It's very difficult to organize. And according to Uber's filing, 60,000 Uber drivers already have or intend to dispute their contractor status with the company. Um, And this is in addition to a class action lawsuit uh, this year that was finalized that paid 20 million to drivers that claimed that they were misclassified. And that was something like over 13,000 drivers that were within that class. So, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how uh, Uber's bid plays out. I mean, like I said, we're looking at you know, many, many billions of dollars on the line here uh, and really something that could really transform a lot of people into to millionaires overnight. Uh, and uh, and they're just really hinged on a lot of things that, uh, that that could kind of move under move under the company's feet. But I think that is all we have to say on the IPO now, because when we get back, Siva has a fascinating conversation with Andy Greenberg, one of my favorite journalists and senior writer for Wired, about the recent indictment of WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hi, our guest today is Andy Greenberg, a senior writer for Wired, who covers security and privacy, information freedom, and hacker culture. He's also the author of the book, This Machine Kills Secrets, which is about WikiLeaks and about hacktivists and cryptography, among other things. So Andy Greenberg, thank you for joining us on If Then Today. Glad to be here. Thanks. 
Right. So uh, on Thursday, for the first time in seven years, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange left the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he sought refuge from a standing arrest warrant in the UK for skipping bail. He was also avoiding extradition to the United States for his WikiLeaks work in uh, helping to release hundreds of thousands of highly classified documents, which included details of war crimes from the U.S. military in collaboration with former U.S. Army intelligence analyst Chelsea Manning. He was also at the time dodging accusations of rape and sexual assault in Sweden, although those charges had been or the investigation had been suspended But in the run-up to the 2016 election, WikiLeaks published a trove of emails stolen off the Democratic National Committee servers by Russian intelligence agents, which inarguably led to serious damaging repercussions for the Clinton campaign and helped the campaign of President Donald Trump. Um, So, Andy, uh, maybe you could start and help us out with uh, describing what exactly Assange faces if he is sent to the United States, if he gets extradited from the United Kingdom? Well, uh, what we've seen so far is an indictment that is, I think, six pages long. It's That's very short, and it's rather thin, as some, uh, or at least one hacker defense attorney has described it to me. Assange specifically is accused, and I think this is really the only concrete crime uh, charged in the indictment with helping Chelsea Manning to crack a password that she sent to him in a kind of hashed form, which is kind of like a light form of encryption, to put it like probably in a technically incorrect way, but um, layman's terms. Um, She passed him this hashed password. He said, I will uh, try to crack this for you. And a couple of days later, she checked with him. He said uh, that he still hadn't cracked it. But just the offer of having cracked it is enough to um, to be part of a conspiracy to violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And that carries five years in prison in the United States if he were convicted of this. But there are, you know, that's, that is really the extent of the criminal behavior that he's charged with. And there are a lot of questions that remain around whether that will stick. Do we have any reason to believe at this point any evidence that he actually cracked that password or took some action that got Manning closer to cracking that password? Uh, it looks, in fact, from the indictment. So there, we now have, have two documents from the Department of Justice. The indictment, uh, which was uh, filed in March of 2018, and then uh, an affidavit from an FBI agent that was filed in December of 2017. The indictment uh, basically is makes it sound like Assange failed to crack the password, but implies that he tried. Uh, And that would be enough, I think, to be a a conspirator. But the earlier document, this affidavit that just came out yesterday, it was just unsealed yesterday, um, and was dated December 2017. And in that document, the FBI, the Department of Justice, basically admits that they have no evidence that he even tried. So it's it's not just that he probably failed uh, to crack the password. It may be that he just told Manning he was going to try and never did. You know, Assange is not the the most forthright guy in the world. It's very conceivable that he might have told Manning uh, he was going to try this just to keep her feeding him information. And then he got busy with other things or he never really did try or maybe he didn't really have the password cracking capabilities, um, the tools that he said he did. Who knows? And I think that to actually put him in prison, the Department of Justice is probably going to have to 
prove that he didn't just say he would do this, but that he actually did. Right. And in fact, there's a pretty high barrier right now. I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to get an indictment on uh, an accusation under something like the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. But it's another thing to be able to show a court in the United Kingdom that there is cause to return Assange to the United States or send Assange to the United States to face this charge. Now, the CFAA is a law that was first passed in 1984. It's been revised a few times, including uh, as part of the USA Patriot Act immediately after the attacks of 9-11-2001. Uh, and it's been used for to, to um, prosecute people for all sorts of uh, nefarious acts or contributions to nefarious acts. It's been used against cyber bullies who were, you know, using MySpace to bully teens. It's been used by uh, to prosecute a Goldman Sachs programmer for uh, copying code that was used for high-frequency trading. It's been used to prosecute Aaron Swartz, an activist and a programmer, a hacker who who, you know, helped create some of the most, you know, powerful movements against excessive copyright. Uh, and he ended up suffering so greatly under the prosecution because he had been able to crack some password encryptions and unleash thousands of academic articles from a collection known as JSTOR. Uh, and, and he was prosecuted under it in 2011. And ultimately, he ended up ending his own life in 2013. So what are your what is your sense of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and its role, not only in the Assange case, but in, you know, when it comes to all of these various activities of computer crime or, or something close to computer crime? Well, there's no question that the CFAA is a problematic law. It's been overbroad, understood to be overbroad for years, if not decades. That was a great list that you had of all of the people who have had questionable and high-profile CFAA indictments. Uh, but it, it left off Matthew Keyes and Barrett Brown, two journalists who have been charged under the CFAA. Matthew Keyes, I believe, passed a password for his uh, his network to some members of LulzSec or Anonymous. Um, simply passing that password was enough for him to spend years in prison. Barrett Brown uh, was accused of sharing a link to stolen files. I believe in an anonymous chat room. So merely sharing a link to stolen files was what started his investigation. Um, I believe that he was then charged in addition with threatening a federal agent. But um, both of those are cases of actual journalists. I mean, we can argue about this beaten to death question of whether Assange is a journalist, but Matthew Keyes and Barrett Brown absolutely consider themselves journalists and are more traditional journalists, um, have you know written for mainstream publications. And they were both charged with the CFAA for these kind of tenuous acts. And I think Assange now is falling into that bucket more than any other CFAA defendants I've seen. Yeah. And, you know, we, we've also seen in recent years since the rise of WikiLeaks or maybe the fall of WikiLeaks, we've seen other journalistic organizations set up repositories for people to uh, donate some, you know, seized material securely. Uh, so we've seen other examples of, of actual, you know, l more mainstream or legitimate journalistic organizations engage in practices that aren't 
too far from WikiLeaks, or at least modeled upon WikiLeaks. Uh, of course, the actual project of publication of these documents is very different. WikiLeaks does massive dumps of data that we're all supposed to make sense of and sort through, uh, whereas journalistic organizations will vet and check and and certify and be very careful about uh, about whom uh, they expose uh, through the publication of this information. Uh, what do you see are the threats to press freedoms in the United States? Uh, with this prosecution of Assange. Should journalists be worried? I mean, any more than they should have been over the past 10 or 15 years? I don't know. I mean, the Department of Justice has successfully kind of separated Assange from the pack before taking him down um, by focusing on this one act that I do think is not what journalists do, you know, helping to crack a password or offering to help to crack a password and that's is is that because uh, it's criminal or because it's what hackers do instead of journalists, or is it just because most journalists don't have rainbow tables, like this kind of software tool that you you use to crack a hashed password? I think it's probably it's just as likely that it's the latter. Uh, you know, as a lot of the things that Assange did first, as you say, like hosting a anonymous Dropbox that uses the tor you know a tor hidden service, this cryptographic tool to cut the forensic trace of the source uh, that has been adopted by newsrooms around the world. You know, in many ways, Assange has just brought a hacker mentality to the act of journalism. In this case, he had done something nobody else has done, but everything else that he, that he does, like you know, the act of conspiring with a source is something that journalists do all the time in a kind of non-legal definition. So, and sources are breaking the law. They're, leaking classified information that they're not supposed to, and we're conspiring with them. So it, it is worrying. The The line is so ill-defined. Um, and it seems like the Department of Justice has tried to just like kind of desperately latch on to one thing that Assange does that's unique to make him a criminal and not a journalist. But the fact is that, you know, m- most of what he does, and in fact, most of what's in the indictment even, is stuff that all journalists do, or a lot of investigative adversarial journalists do. Right. And of course, conspiracy charges are often built upon acts that are otherwise innocent or common. Like you can drive a bank robber to a bank and driving is not illegal and driving a person's not illegal, but that it's part of a conspiracy or part of a criminal act makes it part of a conspiracy. So that would be the, the prosecutor's argument that normal everyday common activities can be swept into this. Uh, so I'm, I'm wondering also about, you know, you, you know, and followed Assange and WikiLeaks uh, better than just about anybody. What's your sense of the story? I mean, that, you know, the, the Julian Assange we saw taken out of the Ecuadorian embassy and put into a police car, you know, with his full beard, you know, it reminded me of sort of late Orson Welles. So, uh, you know, are we looking at a late Orson Welles figure? And how does that contrast with the the Assange we knew in the early years of the 21st century. And how have you seen him change, his mission change, the mission of WikiLeaks change? Has he undergone an ideological shift or has he been fairly consistent and just our concerns have shifted over time? I think that there have certainly been um, different Assanges over the years. And the one that I interviewed in 2010, um, which is really the last time I did a big substantive interview with him. After that, I, you know, had these brief conversations with him, which uh, mostly consisted of him yelling at me about stuff that he thought I, you know, had been unfair to him about. So since since 2010, he has become, I think, a really different person and has 
drastically shifted WikiLeaks activities. And I think that a lot of it is just that he he holds grudges. He's you know becomes obsessed with settling scores, and his enemy list has just like burgeoned over the years to the point where it seems like he in 2016. I, I can't psychoanalyze him, but it but it certainly seemed like he was more interested in attacking Hillary than leaking anything about Trump, who we know has massive secrets to leak. And he seemed entirely uninterested because he had, I don't know, I don't know, really know why, I have to admit. But, you know, it's all too easy to see that he had a score to settle with Clinton. He had published blog posts, kind of just strange, subjective, you know, screeds about her warmongering. And I think that he believed that she was going to put him in prison and chose a side. And that's, I, that is, I think, somewhat different from the Assange that I knew in 2010, who was more idealistic less bitter, um, I think was a more admirable person in his principles. And that, and I mean that in a way that I think is, is distinct from the fact that he has shifted in his allegiance from um, ostensibly like left-leaning people to the right. So one person who has remained fairly consistent throughout this whole saga is Chelsea Manning, who finds herself once again in jail. She's been jailed for refusing to answer to a grand jury uh, subpoena to testify ostensibly against Julian Assange. And, and Manning had been released from federal prison after President Obama commuted her 35-year sentence. So um, how do you see the relationship between Manning and Assange? And, and do you see Manning as someone who is, who's been consistent in her principles throughout this? I think she has been, and I think that that is different from Assange. Assange has done hypocritical things, like he has, for instance, uh, threatened to uh, sue WikiLeaks staff uh, of his own, own organization if they leak secrets. Um, he has had a television show uh, that was funded by the Russian states on our, you know, on Russia Today. Whereas I, I think Chelsea Manning has remained true to her principles. She thought this information needed to get out, and she got it out. She, she in some ways, has an easier job to it, than Assange. Assange is on different sides of different issues all the time, whereas she really just was in trying to get information out about the Iraq and Afghanistan wars in the State Department. Uh, and you can criticize the decision to do that, if you like. Um, and certainly, those I do think that those leaks were reckless in some way. The fact that WikiLeaks eventually, by accident, it seems, leaked all of the State Department cables, even when they were trying to redact them, seems like that can be traced back to Chelsea Manning's decision to give them all to someone who may not be able to protect them. Uh, and that caused State Department sources to have to flee their countries, to receive extra protection, to experience fear, if not harm. So that's serious, but I do think that at least Chelsea Manning's principles have remained internally consistent, whereas Assange has, I think, I would say, betrayed some of them. Well, Andy Greenberg, thank you so much for joining us today on If Then. I was really glad to be here. It's a great conversation. Thanks. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we've seen on the web this week.
It's time again for Don't Close My Tabs, where we talk about the best things we've seen online this week. But first, we want to tell you about a new feature on Slate's website that can help you keep track of the tabs we recommend. It's called the Slate Podcast Endorse-O-Matic. That's such a funny uh, thing to call it. It's very, very uh, 50s. But uh, if you go to the site, uh, slate.com slash endorsements, you'll find a searchable database with all the tabs we've recommended, as well as recommendations from other Slate podcast hosts. That's, again, slate.com slash endorsements. Check it out. Okay, Siva, let's start with you. Uh, Never a slow news day. What tab do you still have open that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, you know, this is my first time playing this game. Don't close my tab. So uh, I decided to go kind of old school, like early web. Mm. Um, and, And I chose a Wikipedia page, the Wikipedia page for Notre Dame. Uh, I, I was uh, I was rolling through Twitter uh, looking at all the people who were commenting on what had been going on with the fire at the Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. And I came across a tweet from a, a security researcher, a network scientist at the University of Colorado. His name is Brian Keegan. And he pointed out that uh, the Wikipedia page for Notre Dame in only six hours had more than 660 revisions from 219 unique editors writing 22 kilobytes of content, including images and video and maps. Uh, links to articles, 35 different language editions were pouring out. You know, the French edition had 483 revisions from 120 editors in a matter of six hours. You know, what we, what we see here is this army of committed people trying to with a sort of flurry of activity and energy, and I'm sure at way too much caffeine, uh, produce the highest quality possible real-time account of what's going on, following Wikipedia's very stringent rules about what should be cited and what should be counted as authoritative. So the conversation pages for the uh, you know, for the Notre Dame site are fascinating in, in itself, right? Those conversation pages, someone could write a whole dissertation about. Here you have this major breaking event with worldwide attention. It's being covered in multiple languages by editors, all of whom share um, a, a principle or a set of principles about, about what should be on Wikipedia. It reminds me that the spirit of Wikipedia and the spirit of the Wikipedia community um, could have been the model for the World Wide Web. And there was a moment in time when we thought it might grow to be uh, where where everybody was donating their time and committed to spreading the best possible information. Unfortunately, it hasn't turned out that way. And, and the Wikipedia model, though, remains strong, remains with us and remains essential. Yeah, you know, Wikipedia, I believe, is uh, the one of the I think it's the fifth uh, largest or, or most uh, trafficked website in the world. Um, and of course, it's kind of like the definitional. It's the answer to so many uh, of our Google queries. Uh, and it's a nonprofit. It does, though, as we know, have a problem with its editors being, uh, you know, primarily male and primarily uh, white or from, you know, America or, or European countries. But uh, I agree, you know, I, I've been uh, studying, going back to this project I used to be involved in called Indie Media, which was also a very participatory, collaborative internet project back in the early aughts. And, uh, and I'm just, I'm fascinated by, you know, what these volunteer communities can create. I mean, we're, again, the fifth largest website in the world, I think that's it. So I, I have to check again. But this massive site is made by, you know, volunteers. It's, it's just 
phenomenal. I know that they're actively working on 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 diversifying it more, and they have been for some time, uh, for a long, long time. They know this is a problem. Because you know, if the people who are writing these definitions are of a of a single group, but uh, but Wikipedia is often it's it's like vastly usually it's like high nineties like correct. It's usually right. <laughs> it's as correct as the Encyclopedia Britannica. Um. So uh. So so for my tab, I actually want to talk about something that that you are an expert on, and that is Google. There was a article that came out this weekend in the New York Times. A uh, fantastic article by Jennifer Valentino. Davirus, I think I said her name correctly, tracking phones. Google is a dragnet for the police. And it is about a new type of uh, warrant that Google is honoring from police uh, that is this kind of geofencing range warrant where the police can ask for uh, a list of devices that Google happens to have location history tracking on uh, for that were in a certain area at a particular time and then narrow that down to particular devices. And Google has been honoring those warrant requests. Uh, and this is just, you know, huge because, you know, one thing that that came out in the article is that somebody was arrested uh, in part based from uh, information that uh, law enforcement had retrieved uh, showing that he was on the scene of where a crime happened or that his phone was somehow. And uh, it was something that he did not do. And he was in jail for some number of days, you know, because just, you know, where your phone happened to, to tick where it was doesn't, you know, make anyone suspicious necessarily or, or, or guilty. And it's it's just, you know, Google has made such a big ado over the years, and you probably know the history of this better than me, of, of fighting and pushing back against uh, police requests for uh, for data. And, uh, and here we see a new type of warrant popping up. And the thing is, Google doesn't have to keep this data. Like, it can do just fine without this one more layer of personal information and tracking, right? It, it actually did okay before it had this layer of tracking. Uh, and it, you know, it, it seems to do okay even when it is restricted in what it gathers. Um, but but Google continues to grab whatever it can grab regardless of the consequences. Let's also remember that it's one thing to have this ex- information exposed to police forces in a country where ostensibly we have things like due process and the rule of law. But in much of the world, we don't have such niceties protecting us. And Google is still operating with the same sort of data surveillance around the world and subjecting many, many people to oppression just for its own ability to target ads a little bit better. You know, it's interesting to me because this this article also points to the very tight relationship, the like inextricably intertwined relationship between government surveillance and and corporate surveillance. Um, and we need to remember that when we talk about uh, protecting our civil liberties from government overreach, um, to not also talk about corporate surveillance is is somewhat disingenuous. Exactly. So that does it for my tab this week. Uh, but yeah, Wikipedia is a great one. And uh, and that New York Times article is something I, I really recommend people taking the time to read. That does it for our show. You can email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, gripes. Just say hi. We love to hear from you. You can follow me and Siva on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser and Siva is at Siva Vade. It's S-I-V-A-V-A-I-D. Thanks again to our guest, Andy Greenberg. You can follow him on Twitter at A underscore Greenberg. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. 
We really appreciate your time in leaving us a five-star glowing review. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you want more of Slate's tech coverage, sign up for the Future Tense newsletter. Every week you'll get news and commentary on how tech advances are changing the world in ways small and large. Sign up at slate.com slash future news. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Thanks to Jonas Strauss at Survivor Sound here in Oakland. Thanks to Robert Armengol at the studios of the Virginia Quarterly Review, a cool magazine that Siva is also a part of. So many projects on his plate. I will see y'all next week, and Siva will also be joining me next week. So please continue to tune in. It's been a lot of fun having him. Yeah, thanks, everyone. <laughs>